what to do. First, I'm going to talk um, tonight addressing the question of what to do. First of all, I would like to thank Ross Bolader Roshi for allowing me to speak tonight. And there'll be several other acknowledgements paid during the talk, course of the talk. Um, you'll recognise them when you, hear, when you hear them. This talk extends a conversation. Ah, please sit comfortably. This talk extends a conversation the Sangha has engaged in in the past few years as speakers at the dojo and beyond have directly or indirectly touched on the topic of how to live in a world that seems to demand a response from us in some direct way. The most immediate talks that come to mind are Tricia on fracking, Mark Edwards on global species decline, Ross on a series of talks on the precepts, uh, which for those of you who don't know are uh, the sorts of vows that um, Zen Buddhists take um, when they seek to commit themselves to to the Zen practice in a particular way. I would also include Murray Widwin's 2014 transmission talk as part of this dialogue with her emphasis on being active in the world. On that day I heard the other side to creativity as the practice, um, which is action as the practice. They are one and the same even if they appear as distinctive, but still the emphasis was instructive and nicely made by Murray on that day. We are each of us in different ways touched by environmental concerns, inequalities of various kinds, species decline, sexual equality, racism, too much work and too little work, too much stuff and not enough. How to face these and other concerns raises the question of what kind of ethics does Zen offer? The classical ethical questions include how should I live my life? Should I ever sacrifice my interests for another's well-being? What should I feel in this situation? And into the realm of political theory, how should we organise society? What are the right social institutions? Other ethical questions go formally into issues of aesthetics. What constitutes beauty? How should I approach beauty? How should I be in the presence of beauty? Part of the answers to these questions, I suggest, comes from the way Zen asks us to live in tension between our subjective world and the objective world around us. How a person responds to this tension directs much of the way forward into an ethical life. And the way I will approach this tension is to dialogue with Robert Eichen Roshi. I don't have his picture. He's up at the moment. Yes. At the back? Yeah? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The founder of the Diamond Sangha. Uh, that the Zen group of Western Australia is embedded within. So I want to dialogue with, uh, with Robert Eichen around his use of Tao, of Tao, the way. So in his book, Mind of Clover, of which there are four copies at the back there if you want to later go and buy them, one, Robert Eichen writes, quote, We do not find Buddhist social movements developing until the late 19th century under the influence of Christianity and Western ideas generally, unquote. 
This statement is found in the middle of his chapter titled Religious Activism and the Tao, which is devoted to millenarianism within Christianity and Buddhism. Millenarianism, briefly put, is the belief that actions in this world will result in the creation of a new world or a new social order. In Christianity, this results in the notion of the kingdom of God. In Buddhism, the pure land, nirvana, or the lotus land. Aitken Roshi recognises that Christian millenarian beliefs first emerged under Roman repression in the early years of the Christian movement. His historical example is emblematic of millenarian movements across the world as they often emerge in times of social unrest or oppression. This is something I know a fair bit about. It's a great topic within anthropology. In our region of the world, millenarian movements are often most associated with Melanesia, that region that includes Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands and other adjacent islands, in the period of the colonial rule principally by Australia. Saibai Island, a northern island of Torres Strait that I have lived and researched at over the last 25 years, is credited as being the location of perhaps the earliest recorded of Melanesian millenarian movements. I'm having a bit of a conversation here with Aitken Roshi. Saibai Islanders are indigenous to Australia. They are Torres Strait Islanders. And it is worth noting that they are as much a Melanesian minority within Australia as they are recognised as Indigenous Australians. The millenarian movement that they founded was called German Wislam. And like many other Melanesian millenarian movements, involved the return of ancestors with many goods. The sorts of goods that white people seem to have in abundance, like tinned food ready-made clothing, tools, and so on. It also involved another social aim, which you might start to intuit if you combine the name of the movement, German Wislam, with the period it was active, 1914 to 1918. During the First World War, Saibai Islanders heartily hoped that their deceased ancestors would return to the island bringing the Germans to Torres Strait and completely overthrow their British colonial oppressors. There is something wonderfully subversive in this desire by Saibai Islanders to see their oppressors overthrown by the people that they were at war with in Europe. But it is not, strictly speaking, this revolutionary overthrow that Aitken Roshi is advocating via millenarianism although he does not explicitly recommend against it. It's worth reading. If the shoe fits, I would imagine. Rather, Aitken Roshi wants to explore both what is being aimed for and the manner it is achieved. What is being aimed for for Aitken Roshi is peace and freedom. And it is not deferred to the future, i.e. the afterlife, which many, many millenarian movements move towards, a deferral to the future in the afterlife. But it takes place here and now. So it's the millenarian impetus that Aitken Roshi 
of social change that he wants to grab onto, but to say it is embedded in the here and now, it is not deferred to the future. What does that mean to live in a moment of change, to instigate change in the present, not deferred to the future? In fact, it is more than this for Aiken Roshi. It is the mindful activity of seeking peace and freedom, which is the very goal itself. Social change is one and the same as what we call in Zen the practice, in particular the practice of intimacy. Aiken Roshi draws on well-known aphorisms to give effect to this. Right here now, peace is the way. This very body is the Buddha. The kingdom of God is within you as expressions of human intimacy with essential nature which is not born and does not die. In Christian terms, heaven is here, not elsewhere. Step into it. Again, key here is it is not the future that is the orientation, but the present which is the future unfolding. What is the very body of the Buddha that Aiken Roshi cited there? Could I have another light, please? It's dim here. For the author of this question, what is the very Buddha, body of the Buddha, Hakuan Ekaku, another response eventuated to this question that took the shape of a letter he wrote in 1754 to Ikeda Tsukogamasa, daimyo or lord of the Okayama domain titled Hebi Ichigo or Raspberries. Hakuan Ekaku is the author of Song of Zazen, that we sometimes chant here at the do dojo and is increasingly sung with accompaniment by, to close our sessions. And given wonderful kind of arrangement by Mark Edwards and played with Joe and Ross and, and others. The following is an extensive quote from the website Hakuan Ekaku Selected Writings 1, and I quote, In part two of the letter, Hebi Ichigo or Raspberries, Hakuan quotes Tokugawa Ayasu's Jin Kun Goikun, Divine Ruler's Legacy, and praises the text as the ideal expression of the spirit of benevolent rule. The most noticeable aspect of the missive, however, is its scathing criticism of the social conditions of the times. Pointing out that the daimyo, with their concubines and mistresses, support the lavish and self and un self-indulgent lifestyles through the labours of the citizenry, Hakuan expresses sympathy for the peasants who circulate petitions and rise in rebellion, saying that a desperate rat will bite a cat. The greatest virtue of the daimyo, Hakuan stresses, is eliminating extravagance, cutting expenditures and devoting himself to the welfare and happiness of the people. Hakuan also severely criticises the Sankin Kotei system, one of the main features of the Tokugawa system of government, in which the daimyo were required to reside during alternate years in Edo, main city. Hakuan attacks the wasteful extravagance of this system and points out the enormous burden of tax that it places on the peasantry, unquote. I should note that that letter was censored and banned <laughs> by the daimyo. Both the immediacy of the here and now, the half-lighted room, the cold air, 
us sitting on cushions, a faint sound of cars, and the social environmental issue that is in front of you is the very body of the Buddha we are enjoined to be intimate with. That was what Hakuan was responding to. What is the very body of the Buddha? Exploitation of peasants. Ikan Roshi mentions Hakuan's um, concern for peasants and he alerts us to something important here. Being ethically active in the world is simply intimacy. Being intimate is activism. How much a person realises that intimacy is their own active Tao or way. A few days ago, a student of mine said that she does not know who to vote for in the upcoming federal election this Saturday. She doesn't pay much attention to politics and does not really know what Labour or Liberal really means. She does know that Greens mean something environmental, but she wasn't sure she knew enough about them to commit her vote to them. We talked and it emerged that she does a lot of work with rescued animals. From that, she felt that she would like to vote for candidates that have animal welfare as a key part of their political platform. Being intimate with lost and stray dogs. Voting for stray dogs, vote one for stray dogs, here is the way the Tao. There are two aspects to Aitken's Roshi's chapter that might raise potential red flags to some of you that I've mentioned so far. One is that Aitken Roshi doesn't actually explain what he means by the term Tao in the title to his chapter. And he's at pains actually in this chapter to state the importance of concepts and using them as long as they don't use you. So it's not as if he couldn't have given a brief explanation of Tao. He titles the friggin' chapter Tao and he doesn't tell you what Tao is. The second is his strong commitment to using Christian theology and imagery to explain his points about living Zen ethically. Some of you may feel that a challenge. I always remember going to what we now call a Zazenkai many, many decades ago in New South Wales and any mention of Christianity um, brought about <coughs> quite a lot of anger actually amongst um, amongst the Zen sitters that day. But here is Aitken Roshi explicitly using Christian theology and imagery. And I want to discuss this. What is going on here? Why is he doing this? And then I'll discuss Tao in a bit more detail. The Mind of Clover was first published in 1984, and I don't know what access to scholarly works detailing the history of intercultural and interphilosophical or religious ethics Aitken Roshi had. But I wish to be generous here because I imagine few scholars would agree with his statement that Zen gets its ethics when it arrives in the West and encounters the long history of Greek and Christian ethical heritages. I imagine, though, there would be much more agreement with Aitken Rochi's uh, uh, notion that Zen tends to develop a comprehensive social ethics when it encounters other ethical traditions. And that's what Aitken Rochi is exploring this encounter between Zen and Christianity as a moment in which Zen finds a sort of an, an, an ethical basis, if you write, like. 
Eichenreich, she is not an anthropologist or a historian of social movements, so he's not well placed to know that movements like millenarianism or even ethical systems tend to be contextual and socratic. They absorb and respond to influences they are encountered. So when Buddhism arrives in China in around the first century BC, it encounters two already substantial ethical systems that inform social behavior, Confucianism and Taoism. So they didn't, Zen didn't have to wait two and, a, two and a half thousand years before it got ethics. It was at least engaging with other ethical systems on its way to encountering another ethical system. Confucianism is a system that gives structure to the way interpersonal relations justice and government should best be conducted. The philosophy of Confucius, who was alive around 500 years BC, centers around the importance of ancestors and generational authority. It is important to know that he gives no credence to the afterlife, only what constitutes the hierarchy of authority here on earth. From grandfather to father to son in that patriarchal worldview. Ancestral veneration as it extends through history and into previous generations. So the principles that some families might say, how great-great-grandfather prepared a field for rice, which his son would, would embody and his son's son would embody, this would lead to a principle of following the way of the ancestor, the male ancestor. Or one family might say the great-great-great-grandfather established the principle of sincerity that we follow today, respect and veneration for your ancestors. This ancestral depth is extended to the whole of Chinese society so that relationships of superior and inferior are built primarily on the father-son, father-as-moral-guide model, and they're extended outwards, older brother, younger brother, teacher-student, ruler and minister, not ruler and society, which is a very Western model. Because the ruler is the guide to the minister, who is the guide to the bureaucrat, who is the guide to the regional lord, who is the guide to the councillor, who is the guide to the patriarchal head, who is the guide to the son. The Chinese ruler is not what Plato called the philosopher king. Plato, alive about a century after Confucius' death, stipulates that philosopher kings provide laws. Laws are a very Western model of ethics. They require that everybody behave in a certain way and presuppose a lawgiver that has the sort of authority that has binding force and leads to the power to command and to punish. The social practice of published demands was disputed as a political model of rule in classical China. Laws that came from above was not the way rulers acted. Rulers provided models for behavior and was not the main way to think of ethics there. In fact, the public records of case law, Gong An, were not made public in order to establish the rule made in a law court so that all may follow it, but to serve as a record of the principle behind the judicial decision. 
Here is the law in Western society. Here is the law. Follow the law. In China, here is the law or the ruling. What is the principle that gave rise to that decision? Pay attention to the principle. Hence, Gong An are guides to knowledge and behaviour, which is the role the ruler and the superior in relationships takes, the guide and the pointer to, the father to the son. The principle in the Gong An case law to those who pay attention to it. The debasement of this principle is what so concerned Hakuan when he rails against decadent and indulgent rulers because they are failing to provide that Confucian or East Asian model of how to live and so disrupt the ability of all to live in a harmonious way. This model of moral behaviour, that of a public deliberation providing a principle to be encountered, is the foundation of what we in Zen express in Koan study. The Sino-Japanese rendering of Gong An is, as many of you would know, Koan. As classical Chinese case law is framed as a manifestation of a principle, so are koans presented as a guide and provocation to an awakening to our essential nature. And I quote that from Ross's Dongshan's Five Runks. Importantly, this older sense of Gong An is not geared towards pointing to a deeper reality, a higher reality, another reality, but this reality right here and now. This principle that is made manifest in the court ruling. It is not hidden. It is not in the afterlife. It is right here and now. So what is the ethical value of Confucianism as it appears in Zen? That we model and are modelled by others and the refinement and expansiveness of that is constantly worked on through our practice, whether it be koan work or the introspection of shikantaza. That is the part of ethics that we think of as morality, how we should act, behave, comport ourselves and deal with other beings. In our unique Zen meditative focus, we create the means for our ethical practice. Please hear me correctly. I do not say in meditative practice. That is any type of meditation. Koan work and shikantaza are forms of encounter and realisation and this, it is this that makes them ethical activities that provide the basis for us to consider those classical questions of how to live, how should I sacrifice my interest for another's well-being and so on. I'm getting close to the end here. Now not only did Buddhism encounter Confucianism but it also encountered Taoism at the same time. Taoism provides a different sort of model for ethical guidance to Confucianism and is focused around the key metaphor Tao or path. Why path? Let's think this through a bit. In classical China, paths are literally the way through natural landscapes. Paths guide us through the landscape, but they do not exert any authority over us. A path turns right, and we can choose to go right. But we are not compelled to go right. A path is not an imperative. In other words, a path is not a law. The Tao is not a law, a command. Unless, of course, there's an injunction to stick to a path. But here we're talking about a classical China where paths are made by the travel of deer hooves and human feet, not by government sponsored surveyors. 
So the walker uses the path to help move through the landscape and accepts or not the direction of the path. Again, pit this against our notion of law, a command, order or an imperative. For all sorts of reason, a law has to apply to all and whoever makes a law has the legitimate authority to bind us all to that law. For us, these persons are judges, magistrates, legislators, corporate management and so on. All of these are models of a greater authority. The Tao, by contrast, is a form of natural guidance. It takes its cues from our encounter with the world, our science, our intimacy with what we encounter, and from this shapes our way, our Tao, through the world. This is the immediacy Aitken Roshi is calling us to live. I want to quote a section from Kathy Shields' most recent talk called, um, titled Meeting Dogen's Words on the Way to give effect to how Zen has taken the notion of Tao and married it to its immediacy on imme emphasis on immediacy. Kathy writes, uh, I recall hearing Aitken Roshi quoting lines from Gen Genjo Koan during my time in Honolulu and their mysterious poetic style intrigued me. In his Taisho's classes and many of his books, Aitken Roshi repeated some of the most commonly cited lines, among them from the seminal book Moon and a Dewdrop, were, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion, that myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening, and then later, the sound of running water is Buddha's great speech. These are Dogen's words, but Kathy's choice of them is a concise expression of the Tao, walking the path, encountering what is present, responding, introspecting, moving, reversing. The sound of running water is Buddha's great speech, as our tire screeches, sobs, jackhammering, the sound of feet ever so slightly sticking to old vinyl floor. So what does this sense of the Tao mean for Aitken Roshi? In the chapter prior to religious activism, the Tao, titled The Way and Its Virtue, he talks of charity in the sense of being open to what is before and around you. We hear the echo of Dogen's echo of the Tao here, and Icon Roshi goes further by noting that openness is relinquishment of self-conceptions, greed, hatred and ignorance, and being familiar with love as an affective force being fully alert, being fully intimate, being fully charitable, being fully in love, works in progress, paths being trodden, wherever you are in realization of these. There is no authoritative standard here, no measure to say what is the bar to admittance to the virtuous ethical life and hence no pressure to feel that you must be an activist to be active. How we each realise our action in the world is the ethical practice. For some it is enough to make sure a lunch is made before 7am for their child five days a week. For others it is working away from family as a FIFO to ensure the mortgage is paid. For another it is organising protests and petitioning companies and politicians for another, it is the careful tending of the carrots in the garden. For another, it is making sure that a client receives exactly what they paid for in the way it was promised. And yet for another, it is regularly walking an abandoned dog. 
This is the way. What is your way? What will you do? Thank you.